When I got to the Cleveland Browns, I felt I was the best receiver by far. Wow. Right away. That's how I felt. Yeah. And I felt I was the best athlete on the team, not by far. Is there one memory that fans most want to talk to you about? One game? Well, yeah, the, the double overtime game against the Jets where we came back and, and beat the Jets. Um, and then we went on into the AFC Championship against the Denver Broncos. Those two games are, you know, referred more than, than ever. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. I'm Jay Crawford. This is the show where we get the opportunity to sit down with former and current all-time great Cleveland Browns. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by former wide-receiving great Brian Brennan. Brian, great to see you. Thank you, Jay. You're in terrific shape. You look like you could strap on some pads and run routes. You know, if the Browns want to win today, they don't want me out there today. <laughs> but you do. You really, you've clearly taken care of yourself, and uh, it looks like the game wasn't as rough on you as it's been on some of your colleagues. I don't know. Inside my body, it, it feels pretty rough these days at age uh, 57. Uh, yeah, my, my wife Bethany and I like to run and work out yeah. stuff, yeah. Well, obviously, Brian, you were part of some iconic teams here with the Cleveland Browns, and you're still in the area, so I'm sure you're rubbing elbows with Cleveland Browns fans constantly. Is there one memory that fans most want to talk to you about, one game? Well, yeah, the, the double overtime game against the Jets where we yeah. came back and, and beat the Jets, um, and then we went on into the AFC Championship against the Denver Broncos. Those two games are you know, referred more than, than ever. I work at Key Bank here in town, and when I walk through Cleveland or through the airport, you know, people uh, of our generation come up. Um, the younger generation, they don't even know who I am. But a lot of the older generation will come up and, uh, and mention those games. It's incredible because that game was over 30 years ago, which it's hard to believe. But that moment, for me anyhow, still seems to be the crescendo of Brown's fandom. Because unlike, there were moments in the drive and the fumble games where it looked like maybe... But at the end, it was a letdown. But that Jets game, it, it's still held up by many fans to be their most euphoric moment as a Browns fan. What, for you, stands out about that game? Well, I remember back in that, the 1986 season, we always felt we were the best team in the league. Yeah. And it ended up that Denver beat us to go on. But that, that Jets game... You know, we had that never give up kind of attitude. And, you know, Bernie Kosar was our quarterback. He had Mack and Biner. You had Webster and Langhorn. You had Ozzie Newsom. You had Herman Fontenot. He had a very good offensive line, Cody Rise and Mike Babb and such. So we felt we could do anything on offense. And sometimes we would sputter, but we'd always come back. And true enough, in that game, you know, Kosar led us back. Uh, Reggie had a big play. You know, Webster had a big play. There's an interference call on me. And we just, we just kind of methodically went down. You know, uh, Gasno helped us out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he did. You know, on fourth down, <laughs> you know, had the... Uh, I guess the uh, roughing penalty against Kosar, but when Bernie was quarterback, we felt we could do anything. Was there a moment in that game before it ended where you even kind of looked up at the clock and you saw what little time was left and thought, we can't pull a rabbit out of this hat? Yeah, I mean, sometimes as a player, you're like, oh, well, it was a great season. But, you know, once you get on that field and you start getting a little momentum and the talent we had um, and a little intestinal fortitude of that team, uh, it permeated, so yeah, we we did feel good in any situation. Yeah. Um, we were 12 and four, and then we you know, get into the, we beat the Jets, and then we go on to uh, play Denver, and, and and we had Denver beat beaten in that 1986 season. 
Um, and it's just a disappointing, um, you know, way to end, you know, with, you know, in the overtime there yeah. to lose to the Denver Broncos in the, in, in the AFC Championship. But uh, that was a special time for me. And if you ask any of my teammates, they would say the same thing. Uh, the camaraderie of that team was exceptional. Um, you know, Marty Schottenheimer was our head coach, and we had a great defense, and, and, and the offense could do anything, in, in, our, in our opinion. Have you ever felt energy inside a building like there was the final couple of minutes of that Jets game? You know, people, you know, people, half the, half the fans left and came back because we were that. down, right? So, <laughs> and some of the fans have come up to me today. So I left and I came back in the game when I heard the roars and such. So uh, it was quiet for, for moments. But, you know, once we, you know, there was a, a clear sign that we were coming back, uh, it was euphoric uh, to beat the Jets like that. Um, you know, we haven't seen that in Cleveland uh, in 30-plus years, as you say. So uh, it's a memory for me that I'll never forget. Yeah, it was, it was a fun time to be a Browns fan. Uh, we're going to come back to your time with the Browns in a little bit, but I want to kind of start by going back to what life was like for you, young Brian Brennan, growing up just outside Detroit in Bloomfield, Michigan. What, what was your, your young years like? So I grew up in Bloomfield, Michigan, just outside Detroit. I, I went to a Catholic elementary school. I went to a Catholic high school, Brother Rice High School, very similar to St. Ignatius or St. Ed's, you mm -hmm. know, 1,200 you know, boys in a Catholic school. Um, you know, I played football. I, I ran track. I, uh, I played basketball. Just loved to play sports. Um, my father owned a construction company, and, and all the Brennan brothers, I'm one of four boys in the family. There's mm -hmm. six of us. And we all work construction in the summer and the jackhammer and things like that. Wow. So you learn to get an education. <laughs> you didn't want to be stuck on that jackhammer for the rest of your life. Yeah, and then I went on and had some success in high school and was recruited. Uh, I remember taking college visits for football to Pittsburgh, University of Minnesota, Michigan State, uh, Boston College. And after I went to Boston College, I knew I was done. Yeah. It was in Boston. I love that. You know, I, I felt it offered me a great education. It was Catholic. Yeah. You know, all the things that meant a lot to me. So... Ended up at Boston College, and you know there, there's this quarterback by the name of Doug Flutie that comes. Uh, he's a year younger than me, so when I was a sophomore, he shows up, and he clearly was a just a great player. Yeah. Um, kind of commanded everything, but yeah. So uh, and then I got drafted in 1984 by the Cleveland Browns, and you know here I sit, um, <laughs> so many years later, a Cleveland resident. Um, yeah. Do you credit your work ethic not just in your professional football life, but in your afterlife, to those early years working for, a, in a, in a hard-working profession, either picking up nails as a young kid, whatever it was that you were doing, you saw through your dad's example that for a good life, there was a good, honest day's work. Yeah, my dad was a special guy. Um, he, he got up before all of us. Uh, he was gone, and at, at night sometimes he would come home late, just trying to get different construction jobs throughout the Detroit area. Worked really hard, did very well at the end of the day. Put us all through private schools and um, on and through college. And, um, you know, watching what he did and then post-career. The hard thing for an athlete is after you play, you know, trying to, you know, transition to the next career. Yeah. So, you know, his work ethic... And even my brother Marty, who is, is older than me, he, he, went, he went to Wall Street uh, and worked for Merrill and Donaldson Lufkin Janrett, UBS, wow. and, and, and he did quite well in his uh, trading of um, bonds, um, U.S. government bonds. And I, and I tried to, you know, after I was done, I, I bridged over into the finance world, uh, and I saw how he did it. 
Is that what you studied at BC? Yeah, well, I was a finance major. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought I'd play in the NFL. Really? I, yeah, I went to Boston College to get an education, and and, and and then through, you know, Flutie getting there and a lot of other opportunities that fell my way. Uh, the draft. I remember the draft, 1984 draft. I was drafted the 104th player selected, and. Uh, um, Paul Warfield called, my phone rings in the dorm, you know, my dorm room. <laughs> There's no really ESPN, so I, hi, this is Paul Warfield. Uh, we just selected you in the fourth round. I'm like, oh my God, I just got drafted in the NFL. I want to put Sam Ritigliano on the phone. You're, he's our head coach. I'm sure. like, oh, Sam who? Okay, yeah, hey. You know, well, welcomes me, and then here I am, you know. Uh, it was such Brown. a different time. There was no pre-draft 24-hour news cycle on who's going to go where and so did you have any idea where you might be drafted what round which teams were interested you know I always thought that the I don't know why the Miami Dolphins with Don Shula I don't know why I can't remember exactly why but there seemed to be some interest from the Dolphins and the Seahawks Seahawks had Steve Largent maybe I fit that kind of pro uh, you know kind of pro style um, but, you know, but it, I, I was surprised when I got drafted by the Browns. But being from Detroit, I was thrilled because I do remember some of those, you know, cardiac kids kind of generation with Sype and Robert Jackson and yeah. the Pruitt brothers and Dave Logan. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Clutch performance when it matters most. That's why Bridgestone DriveGuard tires are built with the resilience to withstand bumps, bruises, even nails. Engineered to drive up to 50 miles after a flat, they're designed with the sole purpose of getting you where you need to go. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Let's go back to um, your early years in Bloomfield. How did your sports journey begin? What, what, what was it that, how, do, how were you introduced to sports? And who were your, the guys that you sort of looked to as, as your heroes? You know, back in my childhood growing up in Bloomfield, you know, <laughs> candidly, a lot of my friends played golf and tennis. <laughs> <laughs> You're a country, a country yeah, club kid. Maybe a little bit, but so I uh, went a different path and I just liked basketball a lot yeah. and, and, and baseball. And, but uh, I was an All-American basketball player in high school and um, was recruited to some of the Ivy League schools. And Point guard? Uh, yeah, point guard. And, and some of the Mac schools, but um, I don't know. I just fell into the football thing um, with Boston College, and I ended up going to BC. But you know, looking back in my, you know, I I lived for sports, right? Everybody has a different interest. I lived for Lions, sports. Tigers, Pistons. Oh yeah, you know, wings. Bill Freehand was a great uh, Detroit Tiger. Oh yeah, and he lived on our street. And my sister Trace was very friendly with his daughters, and so I got to know Bill, who didn't have a son. So Bill Freehan, the great Tiger catcher, kind of followed my career a little wow. bit. Uh, he and my father were friendly. So, you know, he, you know, so he was somebody I looked up to, certainly emulated. You know, he had Joe Schmidt. You know, he had Lem Barney. He had Charlie Sanders, old Detroit <laughs> Lions. Uh, but I, I always figured myself was going to be, I was going to be a running back. But I ended up being a uh, high school quarterback. And as a matter of fact, Syracuse actually recruited me as a college quarterback. Really? Yeah. But I ended up playing... Receiver, and I was never a receiver until I got to college. You know, I was, That's interesting. I was recruit, yeah, I was recruited as a safety in, in all the, you know, Pitt and everywhere else I went. But uh, when I got there, you know, BC says, we really have this need for receiver. I said, all right, I'll play receiver. I don't care. You know, so I play receiver, wow. and then Flutie shows up. Interesting. Yeah. So was there a point in your early years where you realized football was your track? Because I know you said you were, you were an All-American 
basketball player, but it ends up football is your path. When did that sort of click for you? Well, it clicked uh, my senior year uh, at Brother Rice. I was getting more big-time offers to play football yeah. than basketball. Not that the MAC is, is, is not big-time, but the larger schools, uh, the, the, the renowned co you know, college uh, sports programs, Pitt, Syracuse, I don't know, you know Michigan State, sure. um, you know, were coming after me for football. So that was where, where it really clicked. Yeah. So an opportunity to have my school paid for uh, scholarship uh, helped me choose uh, yeah. you know, football. <laughs> but at Boston College, the basketball coach, Gary Williams, who I loved and oh, uh, yeah. great, uh, who went on to win the national championship at Maryland. Yeah. Um, coach still, at Ohio State. Ohio State, yes, yeah, we're still friendly. Uh, asked me to play basketball. Wow. For, for, and, but the head football coach, Jack McNell, would not al allow me to play yeah. basketball. So I, I, that was one sport. Wow. So I'm guessing, uh, being one myself, when you're a Catholic kid in the Midwest, Notre Dame is kind of, <laughs> that's where you're going to go. That's uh, pretty um, funny. Um, did you think Notre Dame and they didn't call or did, were you just never interested in Notre Dame? I would have gone to Notre Dame tomorrow and you know I remember Dan Devine was the head coach and they said I was too small to mm -hmm. play at Notre Dame. So obviously then I hated Notre Dame and I still hate Notre Dame today <laughs> and all my dome heads you know you know what you can have the dome I'll take Boston College all day. Very good. Yeah but we ended up playing Notre Dame. Uh, Jerry Faust yeah. was the head football coach at Notre Dame and in 1983 my senior year at Boston College I graduated for some of my senior year uh, in playing uh, fall sport. Uh, we played Notre Dame in the Liberty Bowl, and we ended up losing to Jerry Faust and Notre Dame. Yeah. Was that 18, the only time you guys played in your career? It, I did, yeah, yeah, 18 to 19. And then BC, oh, wow. then BC got on the schedule with yeah. Notre Dame, you know, for a series. How did you look at that game, the Liberty Bowl, knowing that this this was a place that you would have gone? It's closer to home. It it, it is Notre Dame. What, what, what were your feelings when you stepped onto the field? To All of us, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everybody right. at Boston College probably got passed <laughs> over for the most part by Notre Dame, sure. right? So uh, we had something to prove, and, you know, we kept with them. And yeah, candidly, we should have won the game. It was the coldest game I ever played in in my life. Wow, and that's saying something. It was, it was bitter cold, but and in, you know, in Liberty Bowl in Memphis. Don't go to Memphis on uh, December 30th, <laughs> I'll tell you that. But, yeah, so that was, had a great deal of meaning for all of us, yeah. You, you mentioned the phone call from Paul Warfield. I'm sure growing up when you did, you, you knew what that meant. Um, you knew who Paul was, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. You, you know, so what, what Miami Dolphins and the Cleveland Browns yeah. and World Football League. You know, that, that Paul Warfield. <laughs> what, what was your reaction when it kind of settled down after you hung up and thought, wow, I, I just. Well, I got drafted in, in, the, in the fourth round, 104th player. In, in my opinion, I thought I should have gone to the second round. Really? Yeah, I, I look at the players that were going in front of me, these receivers, I'm like, hey, who are these guys? You know what I'm talking about? But then, he, then when I finally got the call, it was uh, really a magical moment for me. I mean, it was just, you know, the call every college football player hopes to get. Um, you know, back then there were 12 rounds. Mm -hmm. Ernest Biner that year was the 12th round selection for the Cleveland Browns. Don Rogers was the first round selection. And I was just thrilled to be drafted in the NFL by anyone. And uh, still, you know, I, I still tell the story about how it was Paul Warfield. And, it, and then when I got to be, uh, be a Brown in Cleveland and I was a rookie, you know, it seemed Paul Warfield, I was having quick success in training camp, and Paul Warfield took some extra time with me on how to get off the line of scrimmage as a receiver. Wow. When we played back in the 80s and early 90s, the bump and run was prevalent. 
Yeah. And if you couldn't get off the line of scrimmage, you could not play in the NFL. And Paul Warfield took some time with me and really helped me learn how to do that. Was there a welcome to the NFL moment for you? I, I love talking to guys about that, that kind of second when either they look across the line of scrimmage and they see someone that they've watched in the NFL for years or your first touchdown. What was yours? During the first minicamp uh, as a rookie, um, I was still at Boston College, but they bring you out in April or May. I'd forgotten. Maybe I just graduated Boston College. Well, you know, you have a snack in the middle of these mini camps, and back in Baldwin Wallace campus days is where we had, you yeah. know, you know our, our facility. And I went outside just to sit on a, a blocking dummy to have my sandwich and apple, which they gave you. And who was out there but, you know, Cousineau and Clay Matthews. Wow. And they were accomplished, and they looked like, you know, you know Charlie Atlas, right? I right. Mean, and here I am looking, hey, it's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I'm here in the NFL. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Yeah. You know, but uh, they both became friends. And, you know, uh, but that Clay Matthews was a special athlete and, uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a fun guy. And just being, you know, knowing he was on the team and things like that. Was there a guy maybe in your position room, somebody on the team that, that took you under your wing, under their wing and said, this is the way you're a professional football player, this is how you do it? I wish, you know, but no. Really? Um, you know, we didn't have that. Uh, they were rebuilding the receiver core, really. Yeah. I ended up coming in and starting uh, as a, uh, a rookie. Um, Duriel Harris, the great Miami Dolphin, was on our team at the time, and he, and he and I were kind of the starters. Um, that year, but you know, you know, Ozzie Newsom. I, I would say I would point to Ozzie Newsom, who was a tight end, and just to if you can emulate Ozzie Newsom, you're doing the right things. Ozzie Newsom was the first player on the field. He was one of the last players off the field. He caught the ball. He caught the ball. He caught the ball. And at the end of the practice, he caught the ball. He caught the ball. He caught the ball. I'm like, this guy, this guy never goes in. You know, so Ozzie, I would say. There was. Um, is it true that Will McDonough called Sam Ortigliano and said? You've got to look at this kid from Boston College. Is that is that true? I think so. That's how Sam tells the story. Yeah. So uh, I guess the story is the uh, great sports writer for the Boston Globe, Will yeah. McDonough, who was renowned, uh, had called Sam and said, "If you're looking to you know be successful on offense, you may want to take a look at Brian Brennan from Boston College." Wow. And when it became Sam's turn to choose in the 1984 draft, um, you know I, I was selected, you know, by the Browns. Did you have a relationship with Will? Did you know that he than, thought so highly of you? No, I was, you know, Boston College was, you know, the, the, the Patriots weren't very good when I was at Boston College. Right. And we were beating Penn State, and we were beating Pitt, and we were beating Texas A&M, and we were beating Stanford, and we're, you know, you had Flutie there. So there's a lot of, you know, press around the Boston College football team. Right. So Will McDonough wasn't writing about the Patriots. He was writing about the, you know, Boston College team. Right. When you got to camp that first year, and you looked around and assessed what, what was there at wide receiver, you had to be pretty excited about landing in Cleveland because this gave you an opportunity to really come in and, and make a mark right away. When I got to the Cleveland Browns, I felt I was the best receiver by far. Wow. Right away. That's how I felt. Yeah. And I felt I was the best athlete on the team, not by far. But <laughs> Close. I felt you want to play ping pong, you want to play golf, you want to play anything, racquetball, you want to, play, you know, whatever you want to do. Bring it. Bring it. You know, yeah. it's how I felt about my, you know, abilities as a as a rookie, 
And, you know, you know, the only thing I had to really harvest and from others, and Paul Warfield was kind enough to allow me to do it, is how to get off the line of scrimmage. Because, yeah. you know, in college, it wasn't all that, you know, you know, prevalent. But in the pros, it was. And I was going against, you know, Minifield and Dixon and, you know, these kind of, you know, on my own team. Sure. That was like uh, birth by fire. How did that impact your, your professional career, at least in, in the early stages, going against those guys every single day? Then when you line up against the other teams, you're like, this isn't the way it is in practice. You know, Hanford Dixon was a, a great player and a great athlete, uh, all-pro, uh, cornerback, uh, first-round draft pick. You know, Frank Minifield was uh, like a cat out there. He was so athletic. And he could jump through the, and dunk a basketball. And he was a little like me. He's, you know, 5'11". Um, and going against those two guys, every practice, uh, Langhorn, Slaughter, myself, Gerald McNeil, Clarence Weathers, it was bad. We were battling those guys, and they made us better. Yeah. Uh, and we made them better uh, because the opponents back then were like the Houston Oilers and the Pittsburgh Steelers still. But the Houston Oilers had, like, Givens and... You know, Louis Lips was at Pittsburgh, and, you know, so it made them better as well. Yeah. Uh, Minifield and Dixon, I think. So when you come to Cleveland, being from Detroit, you have some sort of an idea. They're first cousins. You know, you know, you know what Cleveland is and, and the kind of people that come from Cleveland. What was your takeaway after being here for a season? When you, when you consider all the other places you could have landed, how did you feel about being here in Cleveland? I was thrilled. I mean, so my parents can drive in, you know, quickly enough and, and see the games. And um, like you said, the people in Detroit are, you know, hard-nosed, you know, a lot of blue-collar workers in a sense. And, and, and Cleveland had the same kind of core, the same kind of character, fiber of people. And, you know, I had walked through town and it seemed like even back then uh, I fit in. Yeah, you know, to the Cleveland, you know, you're one of us way, and yeah, right. I felt like I was one of the, you know, Clevelanders, yeah. and I, I stayed here um, after I played. People say, "Why did you stay in Cleveland after you played?" Yeah, I, I felt like I was, you know, part of Cleveland. That's, you know. Yeah. Is there something about the the Browns fan base that separates this group from every other group? And if you talk to any fan base, Bills. Any fan base in the NFL, they'll say, we've got the best fans. Yeah. But I would say that there's no fan base like this. So what is it that separates our fan base from the other teams? Well, I played for the Bengals. Right. You know, I, um, and then I played for the Chargers uh, later in my career. And I was embarrassed, in a, in a way, being a Bengal. The fans there had no... Uh, didn't know what it was like to be a fan. They were fair-weather fans, and they would wear their blazers more so to the game than their sweatshirts. And then in San Diego, there were so many other things for you know, you know, the people of San Diego to do that that fan base was different. It's just, it was just a marriage between the team and the people of Northeast Ohio that you know, exceeds any other city, in my opinion. Just you go back, and I learned a little bit, you know, to Canton and you know, Maslin High School and Paul Brown and and I think that permeates Northeast Ohio, and, and that's why I think the Cleveland Browns fan is, is a step ahead of, step above all the other fans uh, for all the other teams in the NFL. Then if you look, you know, the Bay Area Browns backers, the London Browns backers, the Fort Myers Browns they're backers. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And I, 
I, I, I just think it's special, and I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, it's unique. It's not so much the rivalry it used to be, but the Browns and the Bengals used to be a real thing. And I think when Sam Weish grabbed that mic and said, you know, you're, you're in Cincinnati, you're not in Cleveland, that just threw gas on the fire. And then later, you end up playing there. Did, was there a sense of awkwardness that now you're, you know, you're <laughs> well, behind yeah. enemy lines and you're one of them? Yeah, it was adding fuel to the fire, as you said. Yes. Uh, you know, you had Boomer Sice and we had Bernie. Uh, you had James Brooks. We had Ernest Miner. You had, you know, Brown and Collinsworth. We had Langhorn Slaughter. You know, we had, you know, some similarities. You had a hard-nosed coach in the whites respected. You had Marty Schottenheimer. You had I-71 bringing you back and forth. Uh, the state of Ohio was at stake. And then, you know, when White, you know, kind of embarrasses himself a little bit, you know, it, it added fuel to the fire. But, um, you know, I look back in, in my tenure as a Cleveland Brown, uh, and we had the better of the Bengals, and we had the better of the Steelers, and we had the better of the Oilers. Can in we our go division. back to that time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we need to go back today to that time, right? I, it's missing, but uh. it takes uh, a lot of the right chemistry from the coach to the leaders on both sides to you know just the belief to win in the nfl today and you see it in teams that are consistent with those things and unfortunately we haven't seen it here not through lack of effort definitely not for lack of trying um when you look back at that era it really was the perfect storm because it was the right coach at the right time the right mix of players. The one thing that always stands apart, to me anyhow, that group played together on the field and they played together off the field. You guys, you, your posse was in the 30s and 40s at, at times when you would go out in town. Talk about that element of liking one another and being a cohesive group where you really actually didn't mind spending time with each other off the field. It's hard to explain, I mean, how close we were uh, in the late 80s as a team. Um, I hung around on a Thursday night. We'd go to TG Fridays, you know, sure. and uh, have a beer with <laughs> Dave Pizzulli and Reggie Camp and Carl Big Daddy Harrison and, you know, Brad Van Pelt and whoever, yeah. you know, that was encouraged, you know, and not that we got too crazy. Um, but it was... Um, the receiver group, uh, and I named them, you know, Slaughter, Langhorn, Gerald McNeil, Clarence Weathers, you know, myself, uh, Herman Fontenot was kind of felt he was a receiver, <laughs> he was running back. But, you know, we did a lot together. We uh, wanted to be with each other. Um, a team uh, that's young, right? The athletes are young, and it's this melting pot of people from Baylor and Boston College and, you know, Miami of Flor Florida and, you know, whoever that comes together, and you know, sometimes that's who you have. Um, today's athletes seems like they um, are a brand of their own, and they just they're just going to surround themselves with away from the team, and, and and try to market themselves individually. But back then, it was this melting pot of players just trying to figure out Cleveland and and win games. And right. It seems to me. It's a much different time. Much different time. Early on, when when the Browns were having so much success, did you almost take that for granted? Like it was perhaps easier than it really was and felt that this would be a yearly thing and it would go on throughout your career? No. Heck no. I, I, <laughs> early on, we were, my first year, Paul McDonald, it wasn't Paul's fault, but, you know, Sam's last year when we brought Marty in halfway through, I think we were 
I forget what we were. We were one and seven. Uh, yeah, right. When Marty when, when, when came Sam in was and, fired. Yeah, what were we five and whatever? Yeah, four and four maybe for the. Uh, yeah, after I forget, I forget what we were, but yeah. clearly better. There was so we had a bad season. The next year, you know, Marty was head coach, and he was going to do it his way. We were going to throw the ball only when we needed to. And yeah, he ran. We ran the ball, and we had two 1,000-yard rushers in Mack and Biner, and we went down to uh, play uh, Miami in Miami, and we ended up losing in the first round of the playoffs. That was my second year, and then I had a run of playoffs for a long time. So I, I was, you know, in, in, on, a, on a good spot. Yeah. You know, of my nine years in the NFL, I went to the playoffs seven. Wow. Hit three AFC championship losses. That's the wow. <laughs> yeah, that one still leaves a mark. Yeah, that leaves a mark. Let's talk about those in the order in which they happened. And we'll start with the drive. Um, what's going through your mind as a helpless observer on the sidelines watching John and his crew Go 98 yards to tie it. Well, before I do that, you know, Bernie Kosar threw a, a terrible pass to me, which I ended up catching. No, I'm kidding, Bernie. No. <laughs> Is that the one you had to come back for? I came back and I made a catch and we went ahead. And, right. you know, it was a chance, you know. That was a terrible pass and Bernie no, will tell you it, it was. No, he, was, he <laughs> threw it to a spot that worked for everyone. Right. And, uh, but, you know, I scored this touchdown and uh, I, I come to the sidelines and, you know, Danielson, Gary Danielson and I were from Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew each other pretty quickly. I'm shaking. I'm, I'm so excited. We're going to the Super Bowl. You know, Building shaking. There's five minutes to go, and, the, and then we kick off, and the ball's on the two-yard line. And then, you know, John Elway just, you know, methodically marches down the field like it's, it's just like any drive for him, cool and collected, hitting and tearing our prevent defense Hit a couple apart. big fourth and longs, too. Oh, like. he did, you know, yeah. Uh, he's a great player in the clutch. It was uh, heartbreaking to watch. Yeah. And then when it got to overtime, we still felt – we were going to win the game, yeah. and we had a chance, and, you know, the kick went over the goalpost, Mark, Mark no Mosley, I believe, and uh, it just broke our heart. Yeah. We were the better team. We're playing at home. We're 12-4. and four. We just beat, and we had momentum after the Jets game. Um, we had beaten them, and we just let up at the wrong spot. We got a little tight. Was that the lowest despair you've ever felt as a football player? That was a hard one, but, you know, the following year when, you know, we went to Denver and they had the better uh, season and they were hosting us in Denver for the AFC Championship. Uh, we, I think we had beaten the Indianapolis Colts and then we went to Denver. Um, and uh, again, it was the battle of the two best teams in the AFC. Mm -hmm. And again, we had great confidence. And the game that Ernest Biner played was exceptional. I don't know how many yards receiving and running the ball he had, but it was off the charts the game he had. And it was just deflating there. It was, that's probably harder because it was the second year in a row losing to Denver, and we were in Denver, and we had to come home. Was the fumble then, in your mind, worse, at least from how you felt personally, than the drive? Well, I think the entire team, like I said, it was the second year losing to Denver. Yeah. You know, that was hard. Um, and then the fumble um, was hard because we, we know how much negatively impacted, you know, Ernest as a player. Right. You know, and, we're, and so we were really, really hurting after that game. And then we had to fly back to Cleveland. That had to be a tough flight. That was a tough flight. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most. 
which is why Bridgestone tires are built for just that. Whether it's driving up to 50 miles to safety after a flat, confident control in wet conditions, or the dependability of an 80,000-mile limited warranty, Bridgestone's roster of tires has got you covered. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Conditions apply. See BridgestoneTire.com slash warranty for details. Do you remember the time when it was apparent to you that your days in Cleveland were over and that you were going to have to put on another team's helmet? What was that like for you? I was shocked when, uh, you know, Bel Belichick uh, uh, brought me up to his office and said we're going in a different direction. You had a great career in Cleveland. Thanks for all you've done. Um, we're cutting you today. We're waving you today. Um, and we want a bigger, more physical player. You're more of a finesse player. And I was like, really? You know, I, I didn't have a, that bad of a season the season before. Um, it was hard. And it's it was so a quick it was a quick conversation between Bill and I. And then I, Most of them tend to be. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> imagine imagine how many words were said by him and I'm like, you know, but and then I, I call um, Ernie Acoris, I go, Ernie, I just got caught by Bill Belichick. He goes, What? He didn't know. He didn't know. And then apparently the next day or within the week he I think he resigned. Um, I don't know what was said, but I don't know if it was because of the way I was released or whatever, but um, it was hard. It was hard to leave the Browns. It was, and it was equally hard to put on a Bengals uniform. But I hated those helmets. <laughs> Who likes those helmets? So do I. When you were at the point where you knew it was time to leave the game, take us through that thought process and the emotions that you were experiencing. So 92 was my last year. My, I played nine years, and I was offered, you know, another year with San Diego, and then Bill Cower, who was the head coach of Pittsburgh, called me up and, and asked me if, if I would come to Pittsburgh, and I was kind of a free agent. And I, I said, uh, I have to think about it. Um, my body wasn't the same. When I went out to San Diego, and we had Nate Lewis, and we had Anthony Miller, and we had Sean Jefferson on the receiver core, they were like Olympic sprinters. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm in my ninth year, I'm not the same. You know, you know, quick twitch fiber that you once had when you're, you know, their their age. And I'm like, and then, you know, I, I see Junior Seau, who was the greatest. I'd put him in the Ernest Biner camp, one of the toughest guys ever. But you know, you're seeing these athletes, and then there's, and I'm like, how much longer do I really have in the NFL? Yeah, I could play and be somewhat productive, but you know, when am I going to transition? When is the right time to transition? I had three young kids. I'm could be here or this city or that city or the next city. I said I wanted something a little bit more solid yeah. than trying to continue to play in the NFL for another year or two. I had confidence that I could do something else for sure. And like I said, I follow my brother Marty into the bond world, into Wall Street, yeah. and it's paid off pretty well. I think I made the right decision. Yeah. Did you have in the short term after your retirement, did you have those moments where you may may have second-guessed yourself and thought, maybe I could still be doing this? Well, it's kind of interesting. The more years you play, the better your pension benefit is, right. except during when I played. Our pension benefit is so poor. So that would be one thing. How many more units can you get for retirement? Yeah. But the, the, the cost-benefit yeah, cost of that versus trying to make a transition when you still have you know, your mental faculties and everything else. Right, right, right. You know, so, yeah. 
How was your transition? Um, yours is different than many of the players that, that I've met and talked to over the years um, because you've had equal success in your afterlife. Um, was it always, did it always seem like it was going to be that easy for you? It was hard. I mean, was it? The transition is always hard. Um, when I was playing football, I went and worked for McDonald Investments, which is now part of Key Bank. But mm -hmm. Bill Summers, who was running McDonald Invest Investments, offered me, you know, a chance to work at McDonald Investments in the off season. Wow! So I went and I got my Series Seven and Series Sixty Three, you know, registered rep brokerage licenses, and I became a um, broker for McDonald a dealer, and. Um, you know, I didn't stay at McDonald. I went to Wall Street to work for Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen Red at Bond House because my brother Marty was in Bonds. But I had to leave my family in Cleveland and work in New York for a period of time and train. And I'd come back on the weekends and I'd stay at the Downtown Athletic Club of all places, wow. which was a pit. And I'd come <laughs> back and forth. But I really wanted to do well there. And, you know, you have to make sacrifices. So I was going back and forth. And eventually, the relationship started to click. And it's, it's been a great career path for me. I love the bond world. It's similar to a football team where you have a, a team of traders and a team of salespeople and a team of research people, a team of underwriters. You bring it all together and you have one goal, and that is to be, you know, <laughs> make money. Yeah, <laughs> really. that's right. It's not a bad goal. Yeah. Um, as you look back on it, any regrets? Anything that you would do different in your playing career? You know, I was a conservative player. You know, I, I really prided myself on catching the football. It seems like the athlete today takes more chances. If I don't catch it, so what? You know, I'll get, you know, I want to make a, you know, some sort of a, a, a huge play. play. I was always ensuring that, you know, we got the first down or ensuring the catch. Sometimes, I guess the only regret I would ever have is I wish I was more, mm, less conservative, more liberal in my Plain, where I can, a little more flashy, not flashy, but a little bit more um, trying trying to get the touchdown on every play versus, you know, understanding, you know, it's moving the chains. What does it say about your personality that because you were that possession guy, but you were the guy that Bernie on third and eleven, Bernie was finding you more often than other guys, and you were the guy that he tended to rely on in those we've got to have it spots. I knew where the first down marker was, unlike <laughs> some of the players today that I watched. But, uh, yeah, I, I just felt I knew how important um, it would be if I didn't catch the ball mm -hmm. rather than, you know, break it for five more yards. Were you motivated by fear of failure? Probably. Yeah. So you didn't think so much about what it's going to be like when I get in that end zone. You were more thinking... I don't want to be the guy that drops this pass. Yeah, a little bit of, you know, there are times when I, you know, I mean, depending on the situation, but I try to break it. But, you know, everybody knows their strengths. How do you want to be remembered by Browns fans? I hope the Browns fans or whoever watched me play thought I gave it all on each play, was a productive player, um, a good teammate by my teammates, but... I hope the fans remember me as somebody that, you know, gave it up. They're all uh, every play, you know. Browns fans for years told you every Sunday how they felt about you. What would you like to say to Browns fans about how you feel about them? I'd just like to thank 
a global Browns fan. To uh, play for the Cleveland Browns was a real honor. Um, to play in the NFL was a privilege, but to play for the Browns was a real honor. And I just want to thank uh, all the fans who uh, remember when I played. Do you have one play that you would like to put into a vault somewhere, and that's the play that most describes who you were as a player or you want that play to reflect the kind of career that you had in the NFL? What play would that be? Not many people will remember this play, but there is a play, Bernie will, um, for sure, and maybe other members of my team. When we played Denver in 1989 in the AFC Championship, mm -hmm. there was a pass Bernie threw to me, and I had to make a diving catch in the end zone that I ended up catching, and it was, we ended up losing the game. But that play is a play I always remember. I think more fans remember that than you think. I know Bernie does. You were com completely laid out, and you needed every single inch of your body to make that catch. I, I think that might be true. Yeah. Brian, thanks a lot. It was great catching up with you, spending time with you. Continued success. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for another edition of Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. Be sure to join us next week when we sit down with another all-time great Cleveland Browns. We'll see you then. <laughs>